actress Katherine Heigl, a passionate animal advocate who has saved over 16,000 dogs, says she's been seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. She believes there's a link between canine health and diet. After extensive research, she developed Superfood Complete, a dog food pack with over 30 wholesome ingredients, including superfoods beneficial for your furry friend. Superfood Complete isn't just about deliciousness, though dogs love the taste. It's about supporting overall well-being. In addition to providing a healthy option for your pet, Badlands Ranch, the maker of Superfood Complete, also supports the Jason DeBus Heigl Foundation, which helps rescue countless dogs and find them loving homes. Dogs across America are trying this food and loving it. Go to BadlandsRanch.com MC901 and order right now to get up to 50% off your regular priced order with a 90-day money-back guarantee. If you want your dog to experience all these incredible things, go to BadlandsRanch.com MC901 today. Just over 10 years ago, a man seeking vengeance for his perceived wrongful termination from a job sunk Southern Californian law enforcement into a state of both fear and shock. A pair of cold-blooded and well-orchestrated murders set off a series of events, including a lengthy and deadly manhunt that would shake the hearts and minds of both police and the public of Southern California and ended up being the talk of nearly every news station nationwide. Join me today as I walk you through these tragic events that took place in February of 2013. Welcome back to Music City 911. Christopher Dorner was born June 4, 1979, in Southern California. He attended Cypress High School in Cypress, California, where he decided he wanted to become a police officer and even attended a police youth program while he was a teen. After graduating high school, he attended Southern Utah University, where he played running back on the football team for two years and graduated with a major in political science and a minor in psychology in 2001. When he completed school, he enlisted in the United States Naval Reserve, where he was an officer who was over a security unit at Naval Air Station Fallon in Nevada and also served with a mobile inshore undersea warfare unit. During his time with Reserve, he received several awards including the National Defense Service Medal, the Iraq Campaign Medal, the Pistol Expert Medal, and the Global War on Terrorism Service Medal. And while still serving in the reserve, Christopher joined the Los Angeles Police Department, entering the academy in 2005 and graduating in 2006. Just after graduating, the Naval Reserve called on him to deploy to Bahrain. This happened while he was still training on the streets to be a cop. In certain aspects of his life, Chris was very well liked. Neighbors said he was a nice guy and would wave to them as they watered plants in their yards, also stating that he was very pleasant. 
college friends never noted anything negative either. One of which said that he enjoyed Chris's company and considered him a friend and also that he had very strong convictions, meant in the most positive way. More intimate relationships, though, they didn't quite match up the same. An ex-girlfriend of Chris's said in court that he was severely an emotionally disturbed person. She dated Chris for a few weeks and even at one point tried to warn other women not to date him on a website called DontDateHimGirl.com. Chris later married, but that only lasted less than a month before divorce was filed. Upon his return from overseas, Chris resumed his patrol training and, just like all trainees, was assigned a field training officer and his FTO was Teresa Evans. Although Chris was seemingly well-liked, Evans at one point claimed that on her first day working with Chris, he said he was planning on suing LAPD after his probationary period due to how the department handled some complaints he had made against some of his training academy classmates. This is not something generally discussed so openly on your first day back on the job. While on patrol on July 28, 2007, Dorner and Evans were called to the Doubletree Hotel in the neighborhood of San Pedro for a disorderly individual. After arriving, they encountered a homeless man by the name of Christopher Gettler, who suffered from dementia and schizophrenia. While attempting to take him into custody, Christopher said that Evans kicked the suspect in the chest and face multiple times while he was handcuffed and on the ground. Gettler did have a facial injury, but initially never made a claim that he was kicked in the face. A complaint was filed regarding this and was investigated by the department's internal affairs, and during their internal review, which lasted seven months, Evans was taken off the street. Statements were taken from hotel employees who were there at the time, and neither them or another witness on the scene saw Evans kick the man. At the end of the review, after taking the multiple witness statements and despite the homeless man having injuries to the face, it was found by the review board that the claims by Chris were false. They concluded that not only did the incident not happen, but that Chris had lied, and for that he was fired from the department. After reading the claims on both sides, it's hard to figure out who was telling the truth in this. Christopher appealed the decision thinking that he was treated unfairly by the department. His lawyer, who was a former LAPD captain by the name of Randall Kwan, was there with Chris during the initial review and during the termination appeal that was filed with the Los Angeles County Superior Court. During the appeal, the judge upheld the department's claims. This made Chris enraged, and he yelled, I told the truth. How can this ruling happen? This was the final straw for Chris. He believed that his life had been ruined because of all the things with the department and that he had done every legal action possible the correct way and was being used as some sort of a scapegoat by the department. He decided to take his own actions as a last resort, and those actions would prove to be deadly. On February 3rd, 2013, a Sunday, at around 9:10 p.m., a passerby was driving in the parking structure located in a condo building at 2100 Scholarship in Irvine, California, when they noticed two people slumped over inside of a white Kia Optima sedan. 
The passerby called 911 and police found the bodies of two people, 27-year-old Keith Lawrence, who was the car's registered owner, and 28-year-old Monica Kwan. Surrounding the vehicle were 14 bullet casings. There were no eyewitnesses. No one heard any gunshots. The couple in the car had no known enemies. Robbery wasn't even considered a motive. The victim's belongings were still there, including Monica's purse and an expensive engagement ring. Monica and Keith had been recently engaged and both lived in the same building. Monica was an assistant women's basketball coach at Cal State Fullerton and a former player herself at Concordia University, where she met Keith, who was on the men's basketball team. Most notable, though, she was the daughter of Robert Kwan, the man who represented Christopher Dorner in his hearing and appeal. At first, nothing was found that connected Chris to the murders. Police were baffled as to what happened or who the suspect was. The next day, Christopher posted a manifesto on Facebook outlining his reasons for doing the killings, citing things like racism in the LAPD, his own run-ins within the department, and also naming over 40 other targets and warning law enforcement that he had the upper hand. The manifesto itself widely varied in the writings. When talking about himself, he had a paragraph that said, I'm not an aspiring rapper. I'm not a gang member. I'm not a dope dealer. I don't have multiple babies' mamas. I'm an American by choice. I'm a son. I'm a brother. I'm a military service member. I'm a man who's lost complete faith in the system when the system betrayed, slandered, and libeled me. I lived a good life, and though not a religious man, I always stuck to my own personal code of ethics, ethos, and always stuck to my shoreline and true north. I didn't need the U.S. Navy to instill honor, courage, and commitment in me, but I thank them for reinforcing it. It's in my DNA. That paragraph ends there. Much further down the nearly 11,000-word manifesto, Chris gets into specific thoughts about different races and sexual orientations within the department, saying that white, Asian, and Hispanic officers are considered high-value targets, saying black officers in high ranks are a new breed of bigots, and that lesbian officers go to work day in and day out with the sole intent of attempting to prove their misandrist authority, not feminism, to degrade male officers. The list goes on. Shortly after releasing the manifesto, a neighboring police department found a notebook and police gear in a dumpster. Inside the notebook and on the name tag was the name C. Dorner. Also in the notebook was the name Teresa Evans, Chris's former FTO. She was called by that police department and then helped piece together the connection between Michelle and Christopher. Police had a suspect now, and after associating the manifesto with Chris and the murders, they all were put on extreme high alert. Protection details were set up for people named as targets in the manifesto. Dorner had made it clear that police were his target and that he would go down fighting, taking as many officers with him as he could, saying, you will now live the life of the prey. The manhunt was on. Police needed to find Christopher Dorner before more violence could happen, and Christopher needed a way to continue with his plan 
doing whatever he could to remain as stealthy as possible. On February 6th at around 10.30 p.m., an 81-year-old man was with his boat at the Southwestern Yacht Club in San Diego. Chris saw the man and picked him as a target, not so much for the man, but for his boat. Chris decided he was going to steal the boat and take it to Mexico. He confronted the owner with a gun, tied him up, and tried taking the boat, but a rope got caught in the propeller and stalled the engine. He couldn't leave. He then stole the owner's cell phone and left from the boat dock. Very early the next morning at around 1 a.m., a citizen by the name of Lee McDaniel saw someone he believed was Dorner at a gas station south of Corona. McDaniel saw a picture on the news the night before, and when he saw Dorner, who was in a gray Nissan Titan pickup truck, he managed to flag down two police officers who were on the way to one of the protection details at a Target's house driving by and alerted them to what he saw. The officers then saw the truck and followed it onto a nearby freeway. About 20 minutes later, Chris gets off the freeway at the Magnolia Avenue exit and opens fire on the officers. One of the officers was hit in the head, but luckily, it was only a graze. Their car didn't fare as well, though. It was immobilized, and they weren't able to continue pursuing the suspect. They were also out of radio range and had to use a cell phone to call in what had happened. Just 13 minutes later, two Riverside police officers were sitting in a red light at the corner of Magnolia and Arlington when Christopher pulled up on the opposite side of the intersection from them. Chris ran the red light and headed straight for the officers. He opened fire, shooting around 13 shots into the patrol car. Officer Michael Crane was killed almost instantly, and Officer Andrew Tachius was so severely injured he couldn't move his arms. A passing taxi driver stopped and had to use the police radio to call help for them. Officers, who were already taking this threat seriously, now had fallen officers as well. Chris was making good on his threat to kill officers. At around 5.30 a.m., seven officers who were on a protection detail of one of Chris's targets in Torrance, California, spotted a pickup truck that they believed was Chris pulling down the street with the lights out. Police opened fire on the vehicle, shooting well over 100 rounds at the truck. The truck was not a Nissan Titan. It was a Toyota Tacoma. Chris wasn't inside. It was occupied by two women, 71-year-old Emma Hernandez and her daughter, 47-year-old Margie Carranza. They were out in the early hours delivering newspapers, and both were hit by bullets. Emma shot in the back, and Margie shot in the hand. They were driving the neighborhood with their lights out so they wouldn't wake residents when they pulled into driveways to deliver the newspaper. This wasn't the only time something like this happened. About 25 minutes after the first shooting, other officers slammed into the side of a black Honda Ridgeline truck and opened fire on the occupant, a man named David Perdue. He was lucky and wasn't hit by the bullets. Perdue is white. Dorner is black. The trucks didn't look at all that similar either. Later on, after the shootings involving the parties who weren't related at all to the manhunt for Christopher, settlements from police departments were made to the victims, all of which lived. The settlements were $4.2 million for the women and $1.8 million for the man. For the next several hours, Christopher seemingly disappeared. That was until his burning truck was found over 60 miles away in the Big Bear Lake area on a dirt U.S. Forest Service road. 
Inside the truck were several rifles and camping gear. Dorner was nowhere to be found. A huge amount of law enforcement headed that way. A command post was set up at the Bear Mountain Ski Resort close by. Police and SWAT teams searched the area, going door to door and checking inside every car that passed by. Helicopters overhead used thermal technology to look for him. No sign of him anywhere. The search continued on until a phone call came in on 911, February 12th. This call has been heavily redacted, and I'll further cut the call down due to the length of the call, which was originally well over 20 minutes long. 911 emergency, what are you reporting? I'm sorry? We have been tied up by him. He was taken off with our Nissan Rogue. Yeah. When did this happen? When did he go inside? Uh, it was, we think he was actually here from when he left the truck. We weren't using his unit. It was never checked. We came in with him. We were, we were fixing it up after a long-term rental. So we didn't have it when you he got You guys were tied up? Yeah, we were tied up still. Okay, and how long ago did he leave? Fifteen minutes to half hour. Stay on the line, okay? Yes. We also have housekeepers on the property. I don't know if we ever saw him and he did anything to them or not. We're still tied up. Did he take your vehicle? He took our keys. What keys? Nissan Rogue. What color vehicle? Like a purplish moon color. All wheel drive. It was the exact tank was full. What's the make and model? It's a Nissan Rogue. Nissan R- what? Rogue, R-O-G-U-E. What color clothing was he wearing? I really didn't take notice. He actually was keeping us from looking at him. You're not sure? And the, he left about 15 to 30 minutes ago? 15 to 30 minutes, yes. When did he when did he tie you up? Right before leaving. He tied us up. He had pillowcases over our heads. And How long ago did he tie you up? It was like 15 minutes to 30 minutes. Okay, so this all happened today? Yes, yes. We're still tied up. You're still tied up? Yes. Listen, I already have deputies being dispatched out there. I'm just going to keep you on the line. What is and you didn't know what he was wearing. Was he by himself? Yes. Did you know what he was wearing? Black clothes. Black clothes. Black pants, black shirt. I don't even remember if it was t-shirt or long sleeves. I don't know. Full shirt. Who's there with you? My husband. We we can run the... Listen, do you guys need paramedics? Um, maybe. Um, hey, can somebody get me meds for that um, home invasion? Hello? I'm still here. Okay. Did he have any weapons on him? Yes. How many did he have? He had an automatic with a silencer. I'm pretty sure he's been here the whole time. You think he's been there the whole time? Yes, because it's been empty and... I know from the snow there was never any tracks up and down here, including this morning. How, what time did you arrive there? 
Um, we came in. Well, we live here. We live on the property. This is one of our condos. We we have a we own a resort. Uh, we came in. Him. I don't know what time it is now. It is a little afternoon. We came in to work on it. We were going to work in here. Did you guys see? Did you guys see footprints outside no. prior to going in your house? No. Anybody else other than you and your husband being that were tied up? We're tied up in here. I have my daughter is doing housekeeping and um, and a housekeeper working outside the property. We don't know if they are okay. Is there? Are you sure someone's coming here? I'm sure somebody's going. We have several units on their way out there, ma'am. If they can see 201 and 202, that is the front building. We're in the building behind it. You're in the building behind what? The units that say 201 and 202 are in the building behind that building. You're behind building 202? Yeah, that's close enough. We, we are right across from where the command center was all weekend. You guys are just across from the command center? Where it was all weekend. Did you guys just go up there today to check the property? Yes. We were too busy all weekend to come in here to work. So you you guys arrived there today? Yes. But it's still like right with all our property. We just never came into this. The owners of the condo entered their place at around noon on the 12th, trying to get it ready for future renters. When they entered, they were encountered by Dorner, who had been hiding in there for several days. He held them at gunpoint, and after promising not to kill them, he tied them up, gagged their mouths, and put pillowcases over their heads as blindfolds, then stole their maroon Nissan Rogue. After that report, police had the lead they were looking for, a be on the lookout was put out to all local and regional law enforcement to be on the alert for this Nissan SUV. About 45 minutes after the encounter with the condo owners, Christopher passes some sheriff's deputies and game wardens. The wardens manage to catch up with him, and he quickly exits the highway he was traveling down and loses the game wardens for a bit. He then crashes the SUV into a snowbank. About 15 minutes later, while walking on foot, Dorner walks up to a Boy Scout camp and sees the caretaker. He then carjacks him for his white Dodge pickup truck. When leaving in the truck, the game wardens turn the corner and see Chris. Shots ring out from both the wardens and Chris as they pass by each other, and again, Chris manages to get away. Just a bit down the road, he abandons the truck down a large hill and takes off on foot. Officers converge on the area. They still have no idea exactly where he is. This is until this happened. Sixty one Lakers, sixty one Charlie. Sixty one Charlie, sixty one Lakers, stand by just one. Control sixty one Lincoln. Are we sure he's in the vehicle? And what tracks are we following? Vehicle or foot? Four five, we have shots fired. Four four five shots fired. Seven Oaks Cabin. Seven Oaks Cabin. Copy. Shots fired. Seven Oaks Cabin. Copy. 
returning fire. This is going to be Seven Oaks Cabin. It's going to be approximately a half a mile west of Blast Road and Seven Oaks Road. Copy, officer down. Officer down. Officer down. Copy, officer down. Medic ship's in the air. Medic ship's in the air. Medic ship is in the air. Control 1482, we do not have odds on the subject. You do not have odds on the subject. I need immediate air support. Copy, no odds on the suspect. Alpha, this is going to be the north side of the road, north side of the road, several cabins. Copy, north side of the road. advising directly ahead of you. Deputy Alex Collins was critically wounded and laying in the middle of what was called the kill zone, bleeding out for several minutes. Police used several cans of tear gas to create a smoke screen that was thick enough that they managed to get both officers out of the line of fire and transported to a hospital via helicopter. From there, the standoff lasted several hours. The cabin Chris was in was completely surrounded. A police armor vehicle was called in and used to shoot tear gas into the building, but Christopher remained inside. Later, more tear gas was sent in, and this time a fire inside was started. Police were waiting for Chris to exit the burning cabin when they heard a gunshot. Police were not going to enter a burning building with a man who had shot and killed multiple police officers, and it wasn't safe to have the fire department come and put out the blaze. More rounds started going off inside, likely cooking off because of the heat of the flames. When the fire finally died out and bullets stopped firing, police were able to enter the building where they found a charred body. They also found a wallet with an ID for Christopher. Two days later, the body was positively identified as Dorner by using dental records. His cause of death was found to be a single, self-inflicted gunshot wound. It's been over 10 years since all this happened but residents and especially law enforcement in the area won't soon forget what happened during all the chaos that occurred there in Southern California. Thank you all for listening to Music City 911. 
If you'd like to hear more, head over to patreon.com slash musiccity901 for ad-free and bonus episodes. Follow the show on all social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc. for even more interaction. And because it helps the show grow more than anything else, be sure to share the show with anyone you think you might like to listen. If you love the show, also give a five-star rating and review on whatever podcast app you're listening on. And if you don't love the show, well, I suppose you wouldn't be hearing this anyway. Also, subscribe to the show on YouTube if you'd like to catch the episodes on there. That'll do it for this one. Until next time, for Music City 901, I'm Brandon, and y'all have a good one.